Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive, professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 71 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name's Dan Hasler from Cut Through Coaching, and joining me today is Sophie Wade. Sophie's a speaker, author, and authority on future of work issues. Her book, Embracing Progress, Next Steps for the Future of Work, is an executive MBA program textbook and required reading for several management school leadership courses. Her latest book, Empathy Works, explores why empathy is a critical value, mindset and skill, not only for improving engagement and productivity, but also achieving sustained growth, particularly against the backdrop of the past two and a half years years. I've just finished reading Empathy Works and there were so many synergies between uh, Sophie's writing and the work that we do here at Cut Through. I was delighted when Sophie agreed to come on the show. So Sophie, it's thank you so much here, for joining Dan. Thanks us for today. having me. Not at all. So you are um, in New York as we speak, <laughs> but your accent uh, betrays your origins. Tell us a little bit about where you're from and perhaps Ooh, how you ended up in New where York. Where I'm from? Dunno, really. You know, I mean, I do consider myself a Brit. I'm American now too. Uh, But, you know, I think I'm international Brits, as I know that you are one too. You know, it's hard to, you know, you kind of know where you're from essentially, but you're also from everywhere else as well. And I love that. I love that. I mean, the fact that I've lived in many countries, I've lived in Hong Kong for a long time, visited Australia uh, a good number of times, which I, I love. It's it just, I wish it was just not quite so far away. Um, but that gave me an enormous amount of, a, a great amount of experiences that really taught me so much. Living outside my own country taught me, uh, you know, how work can be so different in, in so many different different places. And sort of the the route that got me to here was just living in different countries, looking at different opportunities, kind of a maybe a millennial or gen z type uh just kind of like oh this looks interesting oh i want to learn more um in you know using my skills in in different ways along a continuum it kind of made sense at the time and that's what sort of really brought me here um i was married at the time to somebody to a guy who wanted to move from germany at the time to to the u.s and or to the UK. And I was like, mm, don't want to go to the UK. Um, you know, it rains too much. And uh, so then came to the, U- the US um, over 15 years ago. So I've been here a while. Yeah. Yeah, and and your work there is, I mean, in your um, in all your uh, blurbs and on the bios and all that, you described as a work futurist. And I'm curious to hear whether that's because often that title gets put on you as opposed to one that you come up with yourself but I'm wondering how you define that phrase and whether it's one that is I mean yeah what what does a work futurist <laughs> do whether that's a title that's bestowed on you or it was or how bestowed you on yourself. me first of all by someone else and um we actually just talked about my friend Dom Price who has the title of work futurist at Atlassian mm. and what I realized I actually do do a lot of is projecting or looking at trends and projecting into the future. And that is, if that's what a work futurist does, then I do look further uh, ahead and and really look and try and synthesize a lot of information and try and understand, well, if this is happening, what does that mean? How do I think people are going to react? And I do do that a lot. Um, And so I think 
that's what makes sense to me. There are actually some very specific definitions I know, and I think there's a work futurist association, something like that. So I can't say that I'm very clear as to how they define it. But when I think about someone trying to understand what's going on, where to be putting people, their efforts and energies and what that, what data that they need to try and understand, that's what I really focus on because particularly now we have a very difficult situation, a lot of tension, a lot of strains, particularly when it comes to different types of work arrangements and people trying to work out which way is up. Um, and previous to that, I've actually, I had come up with the title of work innovation specialist because I had something which said future of work in it and nobody understood what I did. Nobody understood what the future of work is. So that's, I, I ditched that and tried something else. So that's where I am now. <laughs> I imagine the past uh, two and a half years have perhaps been, it, it perhaps has enabled you to make a case for change or make a case for people thinking in this way. Perhaps it's brought it more uh, to the fore. But I'm, I'm interested in, in, in your book, in the introduction, the, the very first case studies you, you speak of, you come up with a bit of, um, I guess, resistance or pushback a bit in how you're framing mm -hmm. um, the need for change. And, and given that, you know, you're looking so far, well, again, I'm not sure what the timelines are, but you're looking at different horizons than perhaps the people who are leading on a day-to-day -day basis in, 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 the, in the business, so to speak. Talk to me a little bit about how people are thinking about the future of work. What are, and I'd be interested to hear what, what that means, because I, I know that it's capitalised, so it is a, is, it is a thing. Um, how, you, how you've noticed that people's um, approach to thinking about the work you do has changed you know prior to 2020 and perhaps now in the midst of, of the, the challenges that people yes, are facing. Yes very I mean, it's a very good point about the future of work because the future of work I now try to frame it as I have in the title of the book as the new era of work because it does seem strange to be talking about the future of work when it arrived in 2020 so it's sort of you know we're in it it's no longer the future it is here and we were we were we have been anticipating it for many years already. And I was trying to persuade people and try, you know, always talking to people about what was ahead and the need to change now for what was ahead. And then the pandemic happened and accelerated the arrival of the future of work, which then made all of that more urgent. So typically right now, and certainly for the last four years, probably, but even more urgently now, I'm really trying to persuade people to make the changes that they have to make for now because of, of where we are. And then I'm also looking and giving data to show where things are projected to go, where we can see the trend lines are going, which makes, make the, you know, uh, sort of stimulating that transformation now all the more urgent and trying to look at the different trends. I mean, the interesting and challenging thing about the the new era of work or the new and the new era of business, which is so highly digitalized, is that there is no one sits there is no one size fit all. We don't exactly know what's going to happen, but we do know what is happening. We do know 
what the different principles are because it is different for every single company, every single person in every single company because companies are made up of lots and lots of individuals who have different needs, who have different ways of working, who use technology in different ways. And the companies operate, uh, uh, even if they're in the same sector in the same space, they're using the same, they're using sort of different ways of operating and are located different places. And all of that affects how they're actually implementing all these tools and, and using different work arrangements. And that changes it. And so it's much more complicated than the ways that we've been working before and we're working at a faster pace. So that's what I'm really trying to help people understand, like the big picture in terms of where we are and why that change needs to happen. And then what's going to help move forwards? And that's where sort of empathy comes in. We have this technology it's all you know, driven by technology, and that's why it's changing so much because we keep adapting and creating and inventing new new ways of doing things. But the the psychological aspect, the ability for us as human beings to adapt to so much change, is one problem. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh my god, I can't. You know, that's a lot of the challenge and the tension so- that we're facing right now because people are faced with so much change. You know, oh my goodness, I wish I could relax coming out of the pandemic. Actually, no. This we, there is so much change that we actually need to deal with now. So there are many different elements to it, but a lot of it is focused on right here, right now, uh, because there's so much urgent change that is needed. So if if there's a listener who's who's you know it obviously they're in they're in this space unless they're listening you know to a five year old episode <laughs> and somehow the world has completely changed and we're you know 2027 you know this is no longer relevant but let's assume that I'm li- there's a listener here going yep I, I get this I know there's no secret sauce there's no you know <laughs> Instagram five step process to 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 get this right but I do wonder if there's a first step or there's a first trigger or first consideration that as a leader um whether that's in whether that's in a real local team sense or whether that's in a in a more global um sense is is there is there something that you know there's a there is a definitive start point where you need to come from is really focused on people and in my book, I, I speak to that, the sort of human-centric system. And I think you can, you know, all of our businesses are our businesses are serving people and and using or or employing people to serve that business, to create the business, to create the product, to to produce the service, whatever it might be. And so it's all about uh, people. And the technologies that we have been, the, the machines that we've been building, technologies that we've been creating are, are now you know, extremely sophisticated, but it's people that are using them, people deploying them. And we now have you know, extraordinarily advanced uh, tools that we can be using and that we are using. So the, 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 And I think I do see that human-centric piece as being sort of the counterbalance to the technology. So I look at it really in terms of the the customer journey and the customer experiences all along that journey. And then on the sort of, I I, I like the yin yang uh, sort of circular idea, you have the the employee, the employees and all the employee experiences along that journey from the moment that they first understand, uh, hear about your organization to the moment that they may leave and and hopefully maybe, maybe circle back later. So that's the framework that I look at it because if we really can understand each other as people and sell to each other 
more specifically, we have technologies now to target the individual as one. I can target you specifically, and therefore I need to understand who you are, what your pain points are, what your needs are, in order for me really to be able to deliver the product or service to you effectively, that you're actually going to go, oh, that's interesting. Maybe I'll buy that. And similarly, you know, as, as if I'm an employee or you're my employee, how am I going to help you do your best work? And that it's something that we now really can focus on. There are, are so many different tools that I can help you, uh, that I they, they can, tr- you know, can be trained to use. I can help you uh, ensure that you're working at the right location. You're doing your best work at different times of day. So it is that framework that is really is centered on the talent, the talent inside the organization and the customers that are outside of the organization. Which really s- speaks to one of the, one of the, I think it was just one sentence or maybe it was a title in the book that just jumped off the page at me because a lot of a lot of the people that we're working with we're hearing that this is what we're hearing so so what are other people doing you know what mm-hmm. what what policies do they have in place yeah. what what tools are they using and and that's I understand why people want that they want clarity they want a solution but the thing that jumped off the page was uh, it, it said um, you know this is a mindset first you know, this is a, you need to have a, th- you know, you need to be thinking about this in the, in the, in one way before you start trying to attribute right. policies and, and tools and strategies. Now it jumps off a page for, for my own reasons, because m- I spend a lot of time talking about mindset in general, but can you, but can you explore um, for us just a little bit here about it, maybe with some experiences of, of people you've worked with about how Perhaps you've had that same experience where people say, "Yeah, but tell us what to do." <laughs> you know, what's the what's the solution here? And and you've been able to nurture an environment where actually, let's think about this a little bit more and let's get our motivations right or our you know, what is it we're actually absolutely. After in the first so, place. well, my journey into the sort of the area, of the field of the future works, actually started off with workplace flexibility, which is the overarching umbrella, which underneath it has. Flexible working, shared jobs, uh, you know, 40-hour work, working four, four days a week with 40 hours a, a, a week still, um, hybrid models, i.e., you know, which could be fixed number of days per week or could be totally fluid. Anything that really isn't nine to five, five days a week in the office 100% of the time is sort of under that umbrella of workplace flexibility. And what I found was when I started in this space in 2011, when it was, you know, with, there were more technologies, we, you know, the, the iPhone, the platform had opened up and, and we were looking, we really had many more capabilities, was that I saw organizations and particularly one, uh, one experience talking to a woman who was working for one of the big banks on Wall Street and they had a policy and this was just, she was just one example, but it really struck home with me, uh, is that they had a workplace flexibility policy, but the people who were on the committee were absolutely old school, you know, were not uh, encouraging or open really to anybody actually using it. And she was just, she worked in wealth management. She was just about to have her second child. And so with, with one child, she'd, she'd been able to make it work with two children. She really wanted to be able to utilize it and was very concerned about, what was going to happen because people really didn't want or, or, or she really did see that that was going to have a detrimental effect on her career or she believed it would. 
Um, and wealth management really is something that can be done. You know, you have the conversations in person, you can do them via video even then. Um, and so, it, but it was, you know, very much a, a relationship business. And so it was, it was that conversation and other conversations like that, which I saw that if you have the policy, but it re, nobody's actually bought into it, nobody's on board with it at the higher levels. And it's just trying to, you know, they were using it because they wanted to try and hire more women. But then if, if it really wasn't infused and people didn't believe in it, and particularly the people who are, who are implementing it, that, that, you know, you didn't have, that if they didn't believe in it, then the people were not going to take it up. And that's where I really sort of see, okay, this is mindset first. And of course, then, you know, when you, when you have that mindset approach, you see that all of this is about mindset and you have to start with, with the mindset, with that open sort of approach to new ideas, that growth, what's often called a growth mindset, that if you, if you're open to new ideas and you're open to being inclusive and welcoming every single person and all their different, uh, viewpoints and backgrounds, whatever, this is what's going to help you be, uh, you know, an innovative organization and, and have all the, the different sparks and ideas that are going to help you move forward. And the, it, it showed, it, it, I saw how much that all the different elements of having that type of a mindset were going to be so important in the future because it was so di the future was going to be so different and was going to keep changing. And if you had a fixed mindset, it was going to really be challenging to, to work out. If you're going to try and go from this fixed point of view to that fixed point of view, the likelihood you get it right, not so high. <laughs> There's a couple of things that jumped out when you when you were just talking there. Um, that, that, I mean, I wonder, and obviously I'm purely speculating here, but I wonder how often policies are written for people um, by people who don't have any empathy for people in that situation, right? So, you know, the policies don't get used often because, well, they were designed, let's say, for example, let's say I designed a policy that would help um new mothers integrate better mm -hmm. into the in, you know work, work flexibly and yet I didn't get any young mother's perspectives in the development of that policy is that something that is I mean I'm hopeful that that's less common now but I know certainly in the past it wasn't uncommon for policies to be written by people who had no understanding of the actual people they were trying I think there are lots of policies uh honestly we've just seen some stuff go on in the in the U.S. which you know these policies have been designed by people who mm. who aren't who haven't lived the experiences and who don't have aren't intimately familiar with the experiences um that said mm. there are many people who come with the type of mindset that is really if you know if you have the mindset that's open to trying to understand people then that really puts you in a good place to to be welcoming all the different ways that we need to be sort of transforming businesses and it doesn't matter whether it's about workplace flexibility or any other type of of element and, and, and you can take it up to a very very high level someone I, I I love to quote because it's just so simple is Mary Barra she is the CEO of GM 150,000 employees and she came out with a dress code policy in the pandemic in April 2020, and it was short, sweet, dressed appropriately. And I 
Love that. Obviously, it's a you know complex business with so many different um, parts parts to it, in, you know manufacturing and sales and you know consumer um, customer facing all those different types. And that was able to sort of sum it up. And when it came to trying to come up with a workplace policy, she did the same thing. And she said, work appropriately. And what was key for me about that is not only was it ultimately had the ultimate sort of mindset, just like being open to whatever people come up with. But it was really saying, I trust you. You are adults. You're going to work it out. What's right for your business? And and that's the key really as we move forward. There has to be that, that connection, that trust from leaders now as more responsibility gets, has to get pushed further down organizations and out to the front line at the pace that we're working at. I heard polar opposites of that during the pandemic where, you know, companies would be installing, you know, key loggers on, on people's mm. software so that, you know, so they knew literally how much work they were doing. And I'm wondering some of the um, narrative or, or language that's being used um, around, you know, getting back to work. Um, you know, and in your book, you talk about it's called you know restoring order, <laughs> which I think has certain connotations uh, around it. I'm I'm interested in the role that leaders have to play in giving trust, like being being vulnerable in a sense to because you know if, if I I guess the need for trust means that I'm opening myself up for. I'm, 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 I'm opening. Myself, if I say to you, work appropriately, I'm opening myself up to you to hopefully mm-hmm. trust that you know what that means and how that looks and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, when we talk about that from a mindset point of view, and again, I wonder, particularly against the backdrop of the past two and a half years, where perhaps business owners, team leaders are so conscious of perhaps they're not inclined to trust. Perhaps they're perhaps they're so intent on holding on so tight. To now they've got some semblance of control back. Why is that a misstep? Why 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 can we not do that? Oh, many things in there to unpack. Okay, first of all, is that I I empathize with leaders now. We've had incredibly an incredibly difficult period of two years, and I do feel that leaders are trying to get their arms around, like literally physically get their arms around the whole thing so that they can, you know, restore order. And that's understandable. And it's understandable that that will feel easier when everybody's in the office. And if everybody's sort of out in their all their different homes, that feels sort of more prone and spread out. That said, obviously, there are many, many companies that have multiple uh, office locations. And so it's, you know, having more than that and just having those also be work work from home locations, you know, you're, you still have multiple locations that you're, you're needing to, to deal with. So I understand that, that desire for control, but what it boils down to is that right now we're moving at a pace where that type of control, that command and control, the making centralized decisions at the top is going to be too slow, simply put. And there was a very interesting research, uh, it was called Leaders Leadership 2020 or Leaders 2020, which was done by SAP back in 2016, which looked at the companies that back in 2016 were winning with what they called digital winners. 
And they found that the ones that were winning had already decentralized their decision-making, had already pushed decision-making down and across the organizations. And they had moved away from this central, this, this centralized, high, you know, very much, you know, making decisions, decisions at the top and enabling, empowering people further down the organization, depending on what the decision was. And obviously depending, you know, through empathy, trying to work out what people are capable, you know, what each person is individually capable of and sort of looking at, you know, thinking about the manager and but you also have the you know the trust element i think we did have a lot of proof during the the pandemic that people do get on with things and they don't spend all their time you know having making cups of teas or, or tea or, or whatever it might be painting their nails but they weren't doing that they were getting on with things and it it feels very insulting for people who are working so hard in very difficult circumstances often that there's something called back to work when they were working really hard and proving themselves. I think there are moments when productivity did go down, uh, which has been, you know, called out by certain leaders. And I think there was terrible burnout and people didn't have healthy habits. And there were, there were periods that of, of great challenge for people because of the circumstances of the pandemic and, and, and people who were, who were, you know, really trying to work hard and overwhelmed with, with the whole family and all that kind of stuff. So I think to, it's, it, it feels somewhat insulting to sort of say, well, you have to come back to the office. Otherwise, you know, you're not going to work properly, but, but hang on a second, weren't you working properly before the challenge? There's also another element to this, which is there's a professor called Paul J. Zak, um, Z-A-K, and he is has done a lot of research on trust. And the reason he was doing it is because he was trying to see what really affected employees and to help them be engaged. And what he found was that the employees that were most engaged were companies where there, were, there was a, a high trust. And there were many other benefits to it. And that was obviously, you know, empathy was was high, but they were happy with their jobs. They were much more satisfied with their lives. They were, you know, higher productivity, all kinds of things that connected with the employee. When the employees were engaged, they had this high trust factor. So when we're thinking about the type of organizations or, or rather the type of circumstances that we're in now, when we really need, we, we need empl every employee to be, as engaged as possible because work is less linear, it's less predictable, it's changing all the time because new technologies are coming in, the circumstances are changing, the supply chain is disrupted. We need so much more from every employee. So working in that sort of the same way in the, which was which which was okay for slow static ways of working is just not going to cut it now. So we have to be thinking about how we work together in a more in a more challenging environment. And that's where that control, that tight grip of control is just not going to work anymore. It's, it's, it doesn't allow the flexibility to adapt, to pivot, to do all those things, which we were able to do over the last two years. And I think leaders can, if they sort of have confidence in the fact of how much they were able to pivot and make, you know, do extraordinary things during the last two years and have confidence to move forward with that same mindset, which they had to sort of think so far outside the box. That really is, is the way that we can be moved forward and, and building on this last two years of experience. So you mentioned the word burnout there, and obviously with the, the doing this at any time would be hard, you know, changing the way we think about work, changing the way we 
you know empower our, our teams mm-hmm. that would be hard at any time <laughs> um against the backdrop of a, a pandemic even harder and and i know you often talk about burnout both at a, at a team level and also leader level assuming that people have, have you know are somehow navigating this time and and you mentioned this before you know that they're, they're hoping that they can relax but you but the case for change is no no you can't relax we need to you know we need to be doing things differently and and how how do you help leaders particularly at the moment navigate that space um around burnout and around being able to recognize well that you can't relax or you can't go back to what's safer or, or easier or less taxing to think about what are some well, of the things first that of you, all i do you, you try and there? explain that where we were in 2019 we were under great strain and we were under increasing strain because we weren't yet adapting sufficiently there was no urge or didn't seem to be any urgency for adapting for the future of work which was coming and so it, if you without that urgency they weren't making changes, but that was only going to get worse, that strain, because people were working in a very fixed, with with very fixed structures, and yet everything was was, was starting to pivot. We were already not projecting out 10 years or five years as we used to. It was much, much shorter term. So we'd already been recognizing to some degree that the nature of work itself had been changing. We have, for example, the um, the project economy, which Harvard Business Review in uh, the, the, the November, December 2021 issue said the project economy has arrived. And what that has meant, because project work and, and huge amounts of teamwork didn't used to be a thing. Now, because things are, you know, and with that project work was also non-routine work. So we're, we're not working routine ways anymore. So trying to at least recognize that this was coming anyway um, and we just you know we this is the time that we actually need to bite the bullet and one of the biggest challenges you know the week there was this data that said you know 70 percent of digital transformation projects failed nobody wanted to do it then because if I do it to my with my company and we don't do it well and how are we going to do this and we everybody needs to be on board and that fear now we're all in this mess together so that's one thing that can sort of help bring down the stress level for a leader is we're all having to go through this and nobody's going to get it right. Or you know, maybe one or two companies might get it right. And there are some companies which have taken the taken that, you know, have bitten the bullet a few years ago and they are ahead of the game and they are doing well and they have, you know, the profits are showing, um, you know, in terms of in disproportionately when they have really got on board with the digital transformation. Um, but we are all needing to go through this painful transition um, and transformation now. So that's one thing. The second thing is that the extreme conditions of the pandemic, we we aren't there anymore. It is much less volatile. We are used to constant change. In fact, you know, the amount of change that's happened since 1870 when we didn't have, you know, planes and bridges and cars and, you know, goodness knows, you know, there was very little that we had, (laughs) you know, we, we are used to change. So, it you know maybe it's picked up a <laughs> picked up a bit, but it is we don't have as 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 many extreme conditions as we had over the last two years, and we do have two years where we did or almost two and a half years where we where we experimented with a lot of things and we uh, we were able to achieve extraordinary things. Um, 
working from home in ways that we never imagined would be possible. And obviously people under extraordinary pressure on the front line. And so there are lots of examples that we can use. There are practices that we can use and ways of approaching things. And when we also ask everybody and we don't just leave it to, I mean, I, I yes, a leader who says, you know, I'm going to try and come, I'm trying to be perfect and trying to come up with all the solutions myself. Yeah, that's really hard. But if you're sort of looking for answers from some of the people who are the most digital savvy people in your company, the youngest people, then you're going to have interesting different perspectives. You're asking people across the organization. They will have some interesting solutions. And we need to be thinking outside the box and inviting everybody to contribute. Those are the types of uh, ways, I think, that leaders can can you know, reduce their, their stress and, and have more ideas that are going to help them move forward more successfully. You mentioned that the nature of work's changing, um, but the nature of the workforce is also mm. changing, right? The, the, the generational differences. Can you talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, what, what you've seen and what the research shows and what experience tells us about the differences, particularly of our, you just mentioned them there, our, our youngest uh, employees. How are, yeah, obviously, you know, I've got a teenage son <laughs> who constantly likes to remind me how old I am and and how I don't and and how I don't understand him. So that's that's a given. But I, I wonder more in a rec- more more of an evidence based um, argument as to what are the differences between you know the younger employees and what again what the assuming that you know when we're talking about leaders, we're talking about leaders who perhaps are a generation or two apart from that. What what are those disconnects or differences that perhaps we need to utilize our empathy to to dig into? To, so we not only make people feel more welcome, but we, it's a win-win for, for sure. everyone and everything in our Well, in our I think teams. welcoming everybody in to contribute is going to be the only way, really, to have the to to create the solutions that are going to be able to move forward. No one generation, you know, we, we are looking. The numbers are are there that the millennials are now coming into more and more of the leadership positions. And and you've also had a lot of of boomers who have, who are retiring and they're kind of like okay enough already I don't want to have to to do this I'm out of here so certainly in the US there, there was a disproportionate I think 3.5 million extra people um, in the boomer generation retired um, over the last couple of years so what we you know we have a, a melting pot of lots of different people Gen X were called slackers when they were the age of of Gen. Gen Z. Um, and so, you know, and, and millennials are probably the same thing and, you know, the boomers. So I think there's certain generational things. The, the differences I do see, whilst every single person is an individual first and foremost, the difference I do see is how much their lives have been integrated or infused with technology at an early age. And that is the difference where you have in fact, only half of millennials really had were schooled in technology um, in their sort of early education, whereas the entire generation of, of Gen Z, who are sort of 1997 or 1996 to 2015. And so their comfort, their facility with technology is the biggest difference that I see across the generations. I, I'm very comfortable with technology. I'm I'm very happy with it, relatively savvy, but I see it as function. You know, I I don't I don't play with it. I don't have time to play with it. If somebody says, you know, this is going to be useful, I'm like, okay, great. Like, you know, done. I, you know, I'll use it and I won't I won't 
play with any features because that's how I interact with technology. It's useful. It gets you there. And, you know, if it means I can, you know, watch a movie when I'm on the plane or, you know, on a beach, you know, fantastic. But I'm not necessarily going to be thinking way outside the box that I know of the particular applications that I use to think what could happen, what are the incredible things that I've seen in other ways. And that's where getting the, the, the benefit of the contributions and the ideas from younger, uh, younger employees who really do experiment and explore uh, all the different applications and, and the ideas that they have and think about, you know, starting up a, a, a new feature, uh, that th- those are the ideas that are really going to help us. I do see I do see that there is a common thread. For example, I sort of said at the beginning that I had a kind of um, maybe a millennial way of thinking about uh, my career. So I think it, it is often also a mindset. And I think that is where I potentially that the, the technology in opening up people's worlds in opening up somebody from the from from the younger younger generations and they have so much access to so much information that helps them have the op- more open mindset so it's i think it's easier when you you know the older generation that's i say a boomer who grew up in a small place did not have access to to so much information to have more of a constrained mindset and so i think that maybe it's both the technology but also the the capacity the that, that has been sort of trained in younger generations just because of the access that they have through the the technologies and that's where i i see the difference so i think you know i think we all need to really be embracing each other because because what we're dealing with now moving forward is pretty challenging. I think one of the the things, like you say, because they're so exposed, you know, they're so integrated into the world in, in a way, they, they see the world differently and they see, they, they're thinking about things. For, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm, again, I can reference my 14-year-old oh, yeah. boy. You know, he is thinking about sustainability. He is thinking about, um, you know, he, he's thinking about rights. So, for example, the legislation you just mentioned in, in the United States, you know, he's he's sitting there, he's well aware of it, not because we've mm-hmm. had it on the news and the one television in our right, house, right. but because it's all over his TikTok and it's all over, you know, and, and it's, in, you know, he's a 14-year-old boy and he's, and he's already thinking about these kinds of th- things, you know, more broadly, you know, people things. Um, and, and I'm wondering about how that, you know, like y- your human-centric approaches that you talk about, you know, how we have to be able to bring that into our work, how we have to bring that into our, our, our professional world. Yes, and I think, first of all, you know, my 15-year-old daughter has, has the same thing. She's very, very concerned about climate change and sustainability and that affects all of this and she's very much she's learning a lot from tiktok in all kinds of ways me and and from political points of view as well i think when you know and i as a parent and 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 you as well we are as well as our teachers as well as their teachers rather are also teaching them to advocate for themselves, stick up for themselves, you know, look at the data, check the sources, make sure they get the data right, and then come up with what's logical. And then we can't, ex- and, and to speak up for themselves, and then we can't expect them, or we are expecting them when they come to go into the workforce, then not to speak up, not to have a voice, and not to sort of say, well, you know, this isn't logical. Why, why would we do it like this when we could do it like that? So 
I think, you know, that really becomes very confusing. And I also do think it becomes challenging when, you know, there are, when we're looking at how we, there are, there are ways to change the ways that we're working for the better. If we're not doing it, we start to lose credibility. So I think, yes, this is the moment to be taking that, that human-centric approach in order to be able to respond effectively to the kids that we've we've parented <laughs> to, to with that, that human-centric approach and not been mm. trying to sort of say, you know, do that because, you know, because I said so. We've been trying to explain things to them and, and in, engage them in the conversation. And that's going to be a conversation that, that is best done at the office as well in order to get them to do their best work. And a lot of that, um, I guess, ties into the, you know, moving away from the command and control and that kind of style and being more facilitative, mm. being more coach-like. Um, and that, that really, again, was uh, something that really resonated in the book because listeners to our, our show know that that's where mm. we spend most of our time, helping people become more coach-like to kind of unlock, you know, the, the, the people around them. Um, how, how do you view that? Like when, when you are encouraging leaders to be more coach-like, um, you know, what, what are some of the core tenets that you try and get them to buy into and, and perhaps against that? What are some of the pushback or challenges that you, you sometimes well, hear when you, when one you go of into the organizations? challenge is that leaderships, leaders really have to change how they're leading fundamentally. You know, it has been about this, these centralized decisions, you know, the, the, the formal strategy being made and like in then sort of cast down across the company. And as I said, you know, we don't have time for that now. And it has been, it could be about the ego of the individual. And now, you know, it's interesting because the way I look at it, actually for my first book is it's the, more of the ego of the organization. Like when we're thinking about the, the, the cultural, the organization, thinking about that as being the unit. Another way to, to, to be, thinking about how leaders are interacting with people on that basis is how fast the, the landscape is changing, how fast customer behaviors are changing, not just from the pandemic, but also as we're integrating more technologies that, you know, my competitors are integrating new technology, which is changing how they're serving their customer, which is changing what the customer is affecting of our company. And we have to like bring in new technologies. And what that means is that from week to week, the managers are having to, are needing more to check in with the frontline employees and check into where we go, where, where things are going. And that's where the coaching starts. It starts really at the, at the ground level because things are changing on a, on a daily and weekly basis. And so having a once yearly performance review is just not going to work. Yes, you can do that and sort of, you know, review for the for salaries. But when you have, you know, weekly check-ins even, it could be 15 minutes, that's what's needed at, the t at a time where so much change is happening. And so when you have that, you know, sort of iterative, iterative conversations, because if you set a KPI, you know, which is KPIs, which are, are sort of, you know, trajectory, projecting out a year, that's, I, I don't know how many of your KPIs are actually going to be, to be valid in a year's time. So we have shorter timeframes. We're needing to be course correcting. We're needing to be working in more of an iterative way. And that 
helps, you know, that coaching function just be a natural and necessary part of the interactions between individuals from, you know, the the the, the teams that, that are closer to the front line. And then as you sort of, you know, go up further up the organization. So it is the nature, it is it is facilitated by the nature of work now and the pace that we're doing business and the pace of change in market developments. It's meaning it it is requiring that we just uh, have much more of a coaching approach. So that that's helping it, I think. I'm wondering um, to, to kind of round out our conversation. I'm wondering, um, based on experiences um, or just observations or purely opinion, like how do you see these these ideas and theories and and you know truths? How do you see that holding in? For example, the education sector or the health sector, where we're not, mm-hmm. where we don't necessarily speak of customers. You know, it's more students or, or patients. But just broadly speaking, how these these tenants that you put out in in the book, they, they hold there as well. You uh, feel? I have actually done quite a bit of work um, in healthcare because of trying to make sure that there is workplace flexibility, but it's not necessarily working from home or working remotely. There's other flexibility that can be given because, yes, every human being is able to maximize their or optimize their ways of working if they're given more autonomy. Peter Drucker said in 1956, I think it was, about the fact that knowledge workers in particular needed autonomy in order to be most effective. And that's what, you know, that's what we are like as human beings. That kind of of autonomy, understanding people is the same wherever people are working. So when we we need to apply these ideas or sort of think about how we can help nurture people in a very different way when they're having to work on location, but absolutely the same, the same ideas, the same tenants are, are valuable and worth. I mean, there are com- there are companies that are integrating ways of stimulating trust. There's a company I know called Trickle, I think you've mentioned in the book. And they have a the NHS in the UK is a huge client of theirs and they help, you know, engage with the doctors and help change their experiences so that and and you know see what they can do in terms of of and there's also sort of you know shift changing and and having giving you know nurses and, and teams more autonomy over changing their schedule. So there are lots and lots of things that can be done. It can be, you know, asking people is one way to get to some of the solutions because they have certainly been thinking about <laughs> what more can be done to give them uh, more control over their own um, their own schedule and over over their work. And so, yes, it is very important for every in every sector, in every company, in every institution and academia as well to be thinking about how we apply these the, these sort of human centric um, principles uh, to be effective in those environments too. Well, your latest book, Empathy Works, frames empathy as a value, a mindset, and and a skill, which I love because as a skill, it's something we can absolutely develop. For anyone listening who's keen on uh, developing their uh, ability to do the things we've been talking about here, where's the best place for people to find out more about your work, Sophie, and get all your good stuff? So there's a lot more information about my book. Um, uh, you, you can get it on any online retailer or in bookstores. But um, sophiewade.com is where there's information about the book. In the book, there are lots of, and thank you for bringing that up, Dan, um, empathy habits. Because what I really do want to be, you know, talking about the theory and talking about all these things is all good and fine. But 
really we want to get down to practicing empathy. So I look at in terms of leadership habits, in terms of teamwork and and all different types of and, and places of, of creating empathy habits to improve every single interaction, every single relationship so that it can do better. So my book, uh, you can find information and there are these worksheets that go together with the book uh, that will help actually, you know, figure out which empathy habits you want to prioritize and how to get that done. Uh, So, you know, that's going to help like develop the types of things that we've been talking about and really be able to transform your organization. You've also got, I think I read um, some online courses, which yeah. by last count, nearly half a million people have taken yes. part in. So uh, yeah. yeah, if you want to join the, the throngs <laughs> of people uh, on the online courses, so that, is that available at sophiewade.com as well? Uh, those are on LinkedIn. Uh, so if you can find me on LinkedIn, oh, yeah. but the the thing that the one that has been most successful has been empathy for sales professionals. And that has been, I mean, it did launch in March 2020, just at a time where it was obviously a very, very different sales environment and people really needed to be to be sort of leaning in to trying to understand the person that they were trying to sell to. Um, and so that has, has been very, that, that you can find on LinkedIn. You can either look under, under me or go to LinkedIn Learning, um, but there are other ones as well. There's a future of work skills. Uh, course, which is my most recent one that has all different types of skills, including flexibility, adaptability, you know, looking at mindset, talking about, you know, all those different things. And of course, has to include empathy too. Absolutely. Fantastic. Well, there's heaps of resources there for people who found this conversation worthwhile. So we'll make sure that um, we'll, all those links will be in the show notes. So if you're interested in uh, finding out more about that and more about Sophie, again, head to the show notes and uh, yeah, you'll find all the info there. But um, Sophie, thank you so much for joining us today. Dan, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. No worries at all. Thank you. If you found that conversation worthwhile and you'd like to dig into some of the resources that Sophie mentioned there, All the links are in the show notes. And as we always say, if you found that conversation worthwhile, there is a fair chance that someone you know would also find it worthwhile. So please feel free to share this podcast as far and as wide as you can in your networks. Also, just before you log off, why not leave us a comment, leave us a rating, and make sure you subscribe to the Habits of Leadership podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. But until our next episode, thank you so much for tuning in. Take care. Take it easy.